Radio. Hello and welcome to this Lumen Verum Apologetics Lecture by Paul Bazanas on the topic How the Church Formed Western Civilization. This September 2009 recording comes from one of Lumen Verum's Friday evening apologetics lectures at St. Michael the Archangel Parish in Belfield. Paul Bazanas is a University of Sydney science graduate who has spent the last decade working in biotechnology. Negatives, you know, stereotypes about the Catholic Church that are really quite awful and most of them are quite wrong. Uh, Anti Catholicism is really um, a way to describe it, it's, it's the last remaining prejudice these days. We're supposed to be tolerant of everything, but it's not necessary to be tolerant of the Catholic Church. We're told to be tolerant of just about everything, but no one really asks what do we tolerate and what do we not tolerate. We're told to respect other people and their opinions. And only all too frequently this seems to exclude religion, and especially Christianity, and especially Catholicism, because we've got certain things that we believe that don't change over 2,000 years. Even the most famous atheist and the so-called defender of reason, Richard Dawkins, has said that one does not need to respect religion of any kind, and indeed we are called to disrespect religion and religious people for precisely this reason, as Christopher Hitchens, who was on the um, talk last night, said except when religion is vague or irrelevant and doesn't impact society in any way, then you can sort of respect them a little bit. Anyway. Uh, because, well, if it was Christopher Hitchens, uh, i just quote the title of his book, which is uh, God is Not Great, Religion Poisons Everything. That's pretty much his thesis. So although um, Jessica Langrell's question last night, which was pretty much asking him why are you dogmatic and fundamentalist, or please explain it, it could be seen as a little bit uh, confrontational. His, his book, Religion Poisons Everything, I think pretty much is confrontational as it gets. However, there are so many other ways in which we are told that Catholicism is bad in many ways. You know, it's anti-science, it's against reason, it's against free inquiry. The case of Galileo proves it. Now, Galileo was a famous scientist who is now known as the father of dynamics. Many people may have heard him referred to as the father of astronomy. I have seen this um, referred to in scientific magazines. They should know better. And in newspapers. I mean, you sort of expect errors in the media. I've even heard this from well-educated scientists at biotechnology companies at which I have worked. Who should know better. They've got double PhDs. They're a lot more educated than I am. And they say that Galileo was the father of astronomy. It's not true. And this is, this is an area where we can easily find out this information on the internet. He did make the telescope better and more efficient. And um, he made astronomical observations with it, which anyone could have done. His theories regarding astronomy were not well thought out, however, and would today be laughter. He believed that the Earth was like a washing machine, and it turned around like that, and that's why you have tides. Which really is quite ludicrous, and even at the time he was laughed at for that reason. And he made the mistake of, of tying that in with the Bible, which is completely wrong. However, the Galileo incident is the main one I've heard by you, but by many people who believe that they are educated. And they say the Catholic Church repressed him and his theories and forced the scientific world to regress. The Catholic Church did put him under house arrest. That much is true. However, it is quite ironic that Galileo wrote his most famous work under this so-called house arrest. 
This famous work is precisely the reason why he is known as the father of dynamics. The entire area, the entire field of dynamics is because of him. It would be quite humorous, I think, if a historian realised the possibility that Galileo may not even have written this most famous work if he hadn't been put under house arrest and told to you know, take your eye off astronomy and stop trying to tie it into the Bible. This house arrest of the Catholic Church must have been pretty poor if he could um, supposedly you know, write a treatise that made him father of dynamics. In spite of that, though, the Catholic Church is still against the use of reason, is anti-science, and has repressed civilization. Of course, there's also the Inquisition, which we've probably all um, heard about. The Inquisition was evil and showed how the Catholic Church killed millions of people. By the way, many bad things probably did happen throughout all these events. In fact, throughout the entire history of the world, bad things have happened. Uh, many people refer to witch trials, though, in the same sentence as the Inquisition. The most ironic part of that is that the witch trials were not the domain of the Inquisition at all. The Inquisition had nothing at all to do with it. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely nothing. If the witch trials were a secular undertaking. It was done by the secular governments. So the religious clergy typically had nothing to do with them at all. The Inquisitions, in fact, only had authority over Catholics and people proclaiming to be Catholic. If you said you were Jewish or you said you were Muslim, you were fine. You were off the hook. Of course, you read books like Dan Brown's book, which is described in the media as having impeccable research describes the Spanish Inquisition as killing tens of millions of people. I think they say 30 million, which is actually not bad. I mean, I've heard 80 million and 100 million before. The actual number of deaths that occurred in the entire time of all the Inquisitions, not just the Spanish Inquisition, which lasted a period of more than 300 years, is between 20 to 30,000 people. That's all. Over all the Inquisitions, that was a lot more than 300 years. Only 3,000 people died in the 300-year Spanish Inquisition. And even Wikipedia pretty much says the same thing. Uh, not that it's the best resource. You know, I would always advise you find another resource. Secular courts killed more and for less reason. The Inquisition was actually the first major universal application of trials with the use of reason. It was actually the most just court system that had ever been developed. Unlike many secular courts, which would always end up trials by torture. Of course, the famous Spanish Inquisition was controlled by the royalty. Now, mind you, I'm not saying the bad things did not happen. Some bad things did happen. There was corruption. I mean, the Reformation is a perfect example of how there was corruption in the Catholic Church. Of course, the other one is the Holocaust, which you all know about. I remember being told by someone at my work that the Pope was heavily involved in the Holocaust and in encouraging the death of Jews. I asked the person, so how come the Pope saved... 800,000 Jews then. His response was, oh, that was just what the Catholics said. I reminded him that that was actually said by a Jewish historian, Pinchas Lapide. I think that's the way he pronounced it. P-I-N-C-H-A-S-L-A-P-I-D-E. You can um, do a Google search for him. Find out all the information. And uh, he pretty much said that Pope Pius XII was instrumental. He, he himself was instrumental in saving over 800,000 Jews. This is, this is not just other Catholics. He was instrumental in doing it. And his response was, well, they obviously do for political reasons. And that's pretty much the um, current way in which many people view the Catholic Church. You know, the Catholic Church is just out to control everyone. Mind you, the Nuremberg trials brought out the fact that Hitler actually had plans to invade the Vatican and set up his own puppet pope. 
and lots of further corroborating evidence has been released in the last few years saying exactly the same thing. However, that doesn't fit into the current worldview, which is that Catholics are uh, destroying everything. Religion poisons everything, as Christian Hitchens would say. Of course, there's abortion, contraceptive, um, major major issues that pretty much means... I mean, Christian Hitchens used the whole abortion and contraceptive thing in the talk last night. He pretty much said, well, look, if, if you want to say that the church are, um, are supporting women, well, then show me where they actually support contraceptives and abortion. Which is pretty much the way that he argues. You know, he, he loads the argument with his conclusion, so that um, you will actually just have to agree with him. Oh, look, Catholic doesn't support it, so therefore it must be wrong. I read recently in the Sydney Morning Herald something saying that mothers and their children were dying during childbirth in some third-world countries, so we need to act by sending them contraceptives. This is this is um, this is a logical fallacy called a non sequitur. It just does not follow. I mean. Children are dying, children and mothers are dying in third world countries, so we send them contraceptives. What are contraceptives got to do with it? I can see what they're trying to get at, you know, they want to sell contraceptives. Okay. The conclusion just does not follow from the facts. There is a certain humour in, in such a story, except when I recall the case of an employee from the company I most recently worked at. This was about um, eight months ago. Um, she organised to collect blankets from all the other employees so that she could take them back to her home country, to her home village. Why? The nearby village had the problem that mothers were giving birth in unclean conditions. And the mothers and babies were dying as a result of these unhygienic conditions. So they needed the blankets simply so they could give birth in a clean area rather than on the ground. Now, talk about medical interventions. We're talking about a blanket of all things. And yet, with all the non-government um, organisations, as they're called, overseas and charities, all they can do is to give them contraceptives. You must um, start thinking. There's a little bit of a disconnect here, you know. It's no wonder that um, you, you read reports of third world countries. At least I have, because I've read a lot of reports of third world countries being wary of any help from developed countries. They're, they're actually quite quite worried about accepting help because they suspect they're trying to reduce their population. It's no wonder when you hear some stories like this. And of course, the Crusades is, a, is a, another one. However, many people don't truly understand what they're talking about when they hear the Crusades. I mean. Um, yes, there was corruption and scandal associated with the Crusades, as there are with just about anything. You know, even today, I'm sure there is corruption in, in places that I don't know about. However, consider the situation at the time. Muhammad started Islam in the 7th century. Since then, Western Arabia was conquered by the Muslims. So it was Palestine, Persia, Syria, Lebanon, parts of Asia Minor, Egypt and Libya. North Africa had, had fallen to the followers of the Prophet. Afghanistan and Cyprus was attacked. Spain had fallen to the conquerors. They did regain it after a few hundred years, but Spain was fallen to the conquerors. Parts of France had been taken, parts of India, maybe even all of India, I'm not quite sure. Constantinople, the head of the Christian Byzantine Empire, was besieged twice and under constant threat from the invaders. Crete also fell in 823, and Sicily, of all places, in 941. In, in, 94, in 941. Overall, two-thirds of what was formerly Christian lands had been invaded and taken by force. Christians were frequently either taken as slaves or forced to pay the non-Muslim tax, which, uh, if you know about it, it's called the jizya. And they were treated as second-rate citizens, similar to how Jews were treated under the Nazis. Now, imagine on top of this that there was a policy of a harassment of any pilgrims entering the Holy Land, which was the centre of Christianity. And harassment frequently meant slavery or death. Now imagine that the Emperor of Constantinople sends a plea for help to the Pope, because they are about to be overrun by the Muslims. What do you think should be done? That's one thing that I have actually asked someone who told me all about how the Crusades shows that the Catholic Church is corrupt. 
We just mumbled something and just didn't answer. Can I just add to that? There have been a lot of um, concerns by the Greek Orthodox that uh, it was the Vatican that let the Muslims kill the Orthodox Christians in Turkey. But uh, sorry, say that again. That, that, it, that it was the Vatican. There was, that, there was an allegation that there was, con- there was an allegation that there was the Greek Orthodox mm. were killed because the Vatican gave the OK to the Muslims to kill them. I haven't heard this one. This is a new one, man. During that Constantinople business. Well, during the Constantinople business, there was evidence that. Um, the Greeks were uh, organising with the Muslims to kill the uh, Crusaders that came over in the Second and Third Crusade. It was, it was one of the reasons why they were distrusted in the Fourth Crusade and so on. That's a whole different discussion that would be interesting, but I don't have time for it. But it's interesting to hear what you said. wouldn't look into that later. So now I'll get straight on to monasteries. Now, some people are aware that monks have played some part in preserving books and literature and language in the early years of the church. Most people are aware of that. You know, books sometimes took a year, two years. If it's a particularly elaborate book, who knows? It might even took three years to actually prayer. However, the monks did a little bit more than that. In fact, there were very few things that the monks were not involved in. The monks literally gave the whole of Europe a network of factories, centres for breeding livestock, centres of study and education, huge area they did. This is why some people describe St. Benedict, after whom our current Pope is named, as the father of Europe. It's one good reason why I really like the fact that um, Pope Benedict called himself after St. Benedict. Because St. Benedict pretty much reformed Europe. St. Benedict gave rise to the Benedictine monasteries, which instituted the rule of St. Benedict in 529. This pretty much meant the Benedictine monk lived the life of a typical contemporary Italian peasant. Um, unlike a lot of other um, monastic lifestyles, they were allowed to have um, regular meals and regular sleeping times. But everything else they were supposed to do was um, to live pretty much the life of a poor peasant. Each Benedictine house was independent and monks usually stayed attached to their own monastery. All monks were equal because God is no respect of persons. There were many cases of the Pope visiting a monastery and the head abbot would be out in the fields tilling of doing something like that. The monk's first and main purpose, though, was to cultivate a more disciplined spiritual life. That was his primary aim. Um, the monk's intention was not to perform great tasks, and yet, somehow, this is what they were called to do. And the Benedictine tradition endured in spite of barbarian invasions in 589, Saracens in 864, pillaging earthquakes, just about everything else that could be thrown at them. If one monastery was destroyed, there were about uh, 200 others to take its place. And when without the monasteries, the literature tradition would have been died out, entire languages would have been lost. However, agriculture was their first big pursuit. They saved agriculture where no one else could save it. They practiced agriculture where no one else could or would. They were willing to do tasks that no one else would do. It was too meaningful for most people. Wherever they went, they converted wilderness into cultivated country. They were known as the agriculturists of Europe, and they cleared it on a large scale. How large? About one quarter of England, starters. Part of this was because manual labour was prescribed under the rule of Benedict. They were required to do it. And monks freely embraced the work that was unattractive or demeaning. Swamps were considered awful places, for example. 
uh, to be avoided by the general populace. What did the monks do? They drained the swamps and turned them into fertile agricultural land. Sometimes it took time, you know, maybe 200, 300 years, but they did it. They were given one, sorry, it was only one-fifth of all the land in the This was uninhabited, uncultivated, forest or swamp land, pretty much unlivable, and they turned into places of beauty. They introduced crops, industries, production methods that were unfamiliar with the people of the area. They introduced the rearing of cattle wherever they went, and the most essential brewing of beer. And remember, there were monasteries all over Europe, so it was a big, massive communication system. If one um, monastery had information, and um, the other monastery would have it. The monks, the, the monks also showed manual work, a lot of respect and honour, which was quite unique at the time. This encouraged a lot of others to do the same. None of the monks despised the work, and they and they even did things that we all know about, like they developed lots of wine, they, they um, created vineyards and so on. Now these agricultural efforts may not sound dignified or glamorous as the, as the efforts in literature and science. However, it vastly transformed Europe and it was absolutely crucial at the time. Remember, this was a time of great turmoil, despair, destruction and invasions. We're talking about 6th century through, through to the 11th century. Monasteries could come and go after invasions, but each one was a model for the other. For example, the Cistercian monks were known for their technological sophistication. They had vast communication network networks between their monasteries. They maintained huge water power systems that were duplicated at each monastery, and they did just about everything. They crushed wheat, seed, flour, washed. There were 742 of these monasteries in Europe at the time, and each one was similar. They were the most effective economical systems that had ever existed in Europe and quite possibly the most effective in the entire world at that time. They were known for their skill in metallurgy. The Middle Ages introduced machinery into Europe on a scale never seen before, and the monks were basically the skilled and unpaid technical advisors of the time over all of Europe. They were skilled clockmakers. The first clock was built by Pope Sylvester II, the future Pope Sylvester II. It's in the German town of Magdeburg in 996, one of the oldest clocks in existence, is now in um, in London Science Museum. It was built in the 14th century of Glastonbury by Peter Lightfoot, a, a monk. And it's in excellent condition at the moment. Um, something interesting, which is actually um, almost relevant to a talk that we once heard called um, The King with the Pope in His Belly, actually, um, is that an archaeometallurgist, that's um, a metallurgist that actually studies the history of... Um, uh, metallurgy, found evidence near an abbey in New Yorkshire, in England, of a degree of technological sophistication that pointed ahead to the great machines of the 18th century industrial revolution. So pretty much the years we're talking about is that this is one of the abbeys that King Henry VIII closed in the 1530s. So it's the 1530s that he closed it. This is when he broke with the Catholic Church and he confiscated all the property and he, um, and, and he pretty much broke them all up and destroyed the properties. That's when he started the Church of England. The amazing discovery is that the monks, that, sorry, the monks, were on the verge of building dedicated furnaces for the large-scale production of cast iron, which was the main ingredient that ushered in the industrial age. They had the potential to do this on a large scale, and they had the communication network spread all around Europe, all around England. In other words, if King Henry VIII had not broken up the monasteries, the industrial age could have started more than 250 years earlier. That's something to keep in mind. However, it is copying manuscripts for which monks are possibly known best. 
This is not like writing today. It was difficult and demanding. And monks had to work through the most punishing weather. They didn't have air conditions like we have now. They were frequently working cold. Um, it, is, it is to these monasteries that the bulk of Latin literature that we have now survives today. When these works were not transcribed or copied, they were preserved in the great medieval cathedrals. Whether it was Aristotle, Cicero, Lucian, Pliny, Virgil, Horace, Plato, these were all commended to students to be read. Uh, certain monasteries were known for specific skills and um, they taught languages like Greek, Hebrew and Aramaic. And of course, monks would share the skills amongst all the monasteries. And remember, each, each monastery was pretty much a copy of the other. In the 1860s, the Count de Montalembert wrote a six-volume history of the monks of the West. A six-volume history of the monks of the West. And he was frequently complaining he could only do a cursory overview. He had another volume simply addressed to references to other places. So I, I, there's no way I can possibly do the monastery's justice. So I'll probably stop that now and go right to the next one. The university. <laughs> now, the Middle Ages is generally known as a period of superstition. Whatever the Middle Ages is, many people think. Many people don't even know when the Middle Ages started and ended. But we're pretty much talking about um, 10th, 12th, 11th, 12th, 12th century here, um, and, and, and before that, even. The Middle Ages is generally known by, by many people as a period of superstition, ignorance, and intellectual repression. However, the truth is just a little bit different. It's actually to the Middle Ages that we owe one of Western civilization's greatest unique contribution, and that is the university system. This is to the Middle Ages. Now, the university was actually an entirely new phenomenon in European history. Nothing like it existed, even in Greece or Rome. The university, as you know today, complete with faculties, courses of study, examinations and degrees, and even graduate study. These all came to us direct from the medieval world. Furthermore, it was the Catholic Church that developed the institution because it was the only institution that showed a consistent interest in the preservation and cultivation of knowledge. Of course, um, Universities at Paris, Oxford and Cambridge usually started off as cathedral schools and took form probably around the 12th century. In the early stages, the universities lacked buildings and campuses of their own. And so the university consisted mainly of the students and was not necessarily always in a specific location. Lectures would be delivered in cathedrals or churches. Libraries were also difficult to start since it would take a scribe six to eight months to write a typical volume of work. Just a typical volume. I've talked about the great monastic collections above, but in reality, they were rather small by today's standards. It wasn't like the state library. Books were typically rented rather than purchased. These universities, of course, had a core of required texts, exactly like today, in which professors would lecture while adding their own insights. They had fixed academic programmings lasting a few years, and it would culminate in the granting of degrees to those who required a certain level of achievement, or who had required the correct level of achievement. The university sometimes struggled with outside authorities and, of course, the church would step in and give the authorities uh, autonomy so that they could do, do what they needed. What were they originally set up for? I mean, you know, we, we go to uni, yeah, you know, I go to uni and lots of people go to uni and, you know, they have various disciplines, but what were they originally set up for in those what, days? What were they teaching? Yes. Yeah, I'll get to that shortly. I'll get back to you on that one. At the time of the Reformation, there were 81 universities. The university could not simply award degrees. They'd only award a degree with the approval of the Pope or the King or, or an Emperor. But pretty much what this meant is that in all of Christendom, meaning all of Christian lands, if one university awarded a degree, 
it'll be recognised in all the other universities. So you can imagine how that spread around the knowledge. Now, um, some of the degrees were um, law. Law was one thing that they concentrated on, on, on a fair bit. Um, arts, a degree in arts pretty much allowed, um, allowed you to then go on to teaching degrees and so on. Um, I think they were more of the first few common degrees, but after that you've, you've got courses in logic and um, various other um, areas. Let's see if I can find out what they are. To obtain the Bachelor of Arts degree, for example, the student was required to determine a question by himself to the satisfaction of the faculty. Now, what determining a question was, it was a disputation. Basically, you would get um, a whole bunch of students t talking on one side of the question, a whole bunch of students talking on, on another side, and they had to talk in order and, and had to argue a certain thing. Um, and the one who came up with the best um, argument, day one, and the student had to determine what was the best argument, the best logic, and so on, and they had to prove it to their master. Usually this took, this, this, this took about four to five years. But that was just one method in which I did that. Um, however, logical argument was um, taught extensively. They, um, they, one, one of the books you had to read was Aristotle's Treatise on Sense and Physics, on Generation and Corruption, Aristotle's Treatise on Waking and Sleeping, um, Logic, uh, Topica, the Topics of Bioethics, Cicero, Aristotle, Plato. Uh, people had to read all these books in order to get a degree. In fact, I'm quite ashamed to say that I've not read the majority of these texts myself. A master's degree could take from six months to three years after your arts degree, or after your law degree. That's not much different than today. Furthermore, contrary to the notion that theology influenced all perceptions, it was generally understood that natural philosophy, which uh, means the functioning of the physical world, was to be largely respected as its own area and was to be kept separate from theology. Even um, Albertus Magnus, um, who I'll probably mention br very briefly later, he was one of the greatest scholars of his time. He's otherwise known as St. Albert the Great, or the Doctor of Science in the Catholic Church. Um, he refused a request by his Dominican brothers to write a book on physics simply for, to help them understand, because he thought that they wanted to mix theology with it. And he explained that theological ideas belong to theological works, not in physical ones. This is the medieval world. The medieval world was logical. And it kept theology separate from the natural philosophy because they were naturally separate. So the, um, the medieval study of logic, I, I've looked at it and I looked at what it actually involved. It actually looks so much better than anything you study today, actually. They were made um, aware of the importance of the utility of reason, of the subtleties of language and pitfalls of argumentation. Scholars took their lead from Aristotle, who was, who was a logical genius. He wasn't a scientific genius, unfortunately. He was a logical genius. They also composed logic texts, texts of their own. In fact, the most famous of these logic texts was actually, surprisingly, by a future pope, Peter of Spain, who became Pope John XXI. His Summulae Logicalis became the standard text for hundreds of years. Not, not just simply 10 years or so, for hundreds of years. And would go through 166 editions by the 17th century. <clears throat> of course, the Pope frequently had to intervene in various areas, and they frequently had to give the uh, universities a special jurisdiction apart from the um, jurisdiction of the area in which they were in. The Pope frequently had to rule on the university's behalf. 
for rule on behalf of our professors to make sure they got paid and so on. In fact, the Catholic Church was the only organisation that continuously supported the universities. If they had never done this, the university system would have probably died a stillbirth. It probably never would have happened. This idea of subjecting every question, no matter how simple or obtuse, to every possible kind of criticism was started to encourage and formalise and entrench in their minds during the medieval period. We all just take it for granted that this has been entrenched in our minds over hundreds of centuries. Sorry, tens of centuries, not hundreds of centuries. Okay. I'll, just, I'll go directly on to science now because I think I'm running out of time. Now, this is probably a question which is quite um, heretical these days. Was it a coincidence that modern science emerged in a Catholic world environment? Dare we ask that it was Catholicism that enabled the success of science? I say, I, th I say it's pretty obvious that they did. Many people speak about the Galileo affair as if the Catholic Church was fiercely anti-science. But if the Catholic Church really was anti-science, surely we could think of heaps of other examples you know, um, in that time. Very few people can. Some people um, refer to evolution and say, oh, evolution proves it. Ask them what does it prove? And they say, oh, don't know. So, if we can think about all the different types of civilizations that were around at the time, very few of them could conceive that there was a God that was rational, that ordered the universe in such a way that the laws are knowable and that things in the universe are ordained to behave in a specific way. Now this sounds like a really simple concept, that God is rational and he ordains the world to work in a very specific way and that laws are knowable and natural. But this simple concept eluded entire civilizations. For example, the Babylonian civilization. They um, believed that um, if you didn't do a, a regular annual purging or sacrifice, the entire universe would um, dissolve into chaos and anarchy. The closest civilization that came to this was the ancient Greeks. They did come the closest, but even they felt quite short because they conceived as objects doing things in such a way because they wanted to, because they had a liking for that particular way of doing it. Thus, an apple will fall to the ground because it loves the centre of the earth, and so it moves towards the earth of its own volition. This may sound sufficient for science, but it is actually far from it. The idea here is that the apple is itself a being that desires and moves away it wishes to move. So there is no reason for it to follow laws of nature unless it wants to. The notion of a law of gravity has no place in such an environment. Islam is an interesting case because there are intellectual and scientific developments that came out of Islam. But this was usually in spite of Islam, and not because of it. The simple fact that we have surviving manuscripts from some of their scientists only because they are transcribed into Latin is quite illuminating. The Muslims rejected the work of their own scientists and even destroyed some of their work, if not in their day. Um, then shortly afterwards. Sometimes it would be their Christian slaves who knew the importance of their work and preserved it for antiquity. And we are glad they did. Didn't the Arabs invent algebra? Um, prior to Islam, yes. Oh, was prior to Islam. Yeah, that was pre-Islamic India. Part of the reason for this was that natural laws, as far as Islam was concerned, were habits of Allah. They could be discontinued at any time. And I understand they still teach this in schools, in Islamic school today. Allah cannot be constricted by natural laws. So teaching natural laws are in a sense teaching that Allah cannot do certain things, which is heretical. However, the Catholic position is so much more, is so much simpler and more rational. 
It's simply this. God is rational and God is orderly. Regularity of natural phenomena is seen as a reflection of God's goodness, beauty and order. And thus the, the world is endowed with lawfulness and purpose. The universe was a creation of God. The study of his creation is in fact worshipping God. Probably in a similar way that honouring Mary, the mother of God, reflects glory unto God. St. Thomas Aquinas, he spoke of God's absolute power. Actually, I think it was St. Anselm who originally said it. But St. Thomas Aquinas said that he spoke of God's absolute power in which he could do anything. He was capable of doing things that are possible, which he chooses not to do. He chooses not to do in his ordinate power. Because his ordinate power, he says, this is what I am going to do. I'm not going to do anything else. It's the same power, of course, but different ways of speaking about what he can and what he does do and what he doesn't do. This means the natural laws of the universe do not contravene his absolute power because it has been decreed by God. A very simple concept, but once again, this eluded entire civilizations. His ordinate power specifies natural laws. Therefore, the natural laws are knowable by man. Even the very notion of miracles, which is used by people like Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens to prove that um, Christians are obviously not making any sense. Even the very notion of miracles is simply the exception that proves the rule. That's probably the best way of describing it. But pretty much, um, miracles are rare. They don't happen all the time. When they do happen, we all know that it is something that is happening outside of the normal realm of nature. We know that this, this, is, this is not something that we explain with science. Miracles, by their very nature, show how Catholics do believe in the rational orderiness or, or, or of, of nature. I remember Chris Hitchens one, one time saying that the water at Lewis is pretty pathetic because it has a pretty low success rate. The water at, at Lewis is pretty pathetic because it, it doesn't heal that many people. It's got a pretty low success rate. Well, a lot of people yeah. do go... I don't want, I want to sound like I'm defending you, yeah. but... A lot of people do go there. They might yep. be terminally ill. They might, yep. and for sure, they might get some um, spiritual benefit. Mm. Maybe that's what the aim is. But a lot of people do go there, and a lot of people don't get cured. I mean, that's probably True. what he's saying. And I'm not. That I don't want to start from defending him. Uh, that is what he's saying. And I guess it's good that he recognises that miracles do happen sometimes. But I'll bet that he will actually deny that he ever implied that. However, it just. I think it actually supports the notion that the entire concept of miracles is not something that happens all the time. You know, it is not something that, you know, oh, it's a miracle, it's a miracle, it's a miracle. You know? The entire concept of miracles suggests that the Catholic Church believes in natural law. Well, I mean, of, of course the Catholic Church believes in natural laws, and the miracle is just something that is outside that. It's the exception that proves the rule. Certainly it's much better than the Babylonian notion that if we didn't do this constant cycle of purging annually, that the entire cosmos would just dissolve into absolute chaos. This, this simple idea eluded entire civilizations. Saint Augustine in the 4th century saw Christian faith not in continuity with earlier religions, but rather in continuity with philosophy. That is also a very interesting concept to take into account. He didn't see it as in continuity with earlier religions, but in continuity with philosophy. And as a victory of reason over superstition, St. Augustine is also a doctor of the church, by the way. There are 33 of them in the history of the church, doctors of the church, and they're doctors of, of specific areas, which they were experts at the time. St. Thomas Aquinas, in the 12th century, 
around those times said that God could have created any universe and it is by means of experience that we come to know the world he did create. By the way, this is echoed by other saints, even down to St. Augustine in the 4th century. None of this is new stuff in the campus came up with. Pretty much, it sounds to me as if science could only have developed in, in a Catholic milieu. So, some Catholic thinkers, I only go through about, about three or four because uh, I have got heaps here and there's no point in going through all of them. Um, Robert Grosseteste was um, in the 1175 to 1253, so around about that, that period, you know, the medieval age. He was a scholastic philosopher, a theologian, and Bishop of Lincoln. Lots of these people were bishops. In fact, half of them were Jesuits. He was considered one of the most knowledgeable men of the Middle Ages. He was the real founder of tradition of scientific thought. So he was the founder of the tradition of scientific thought in medieval Oxford. He was the first to ever write, write down a complete uh, set of steps for performing a scientific experiment. Who was he? Uh, Robert Grosseteste, G-R-O-S-E-T-E-S-T. Yeah, I've got the notes here, you want to look at it later. Vincent of um, Bouvet, who was a Dominican friar, who wrote the main encyclopedia used in the Middle Ages for hundreds of years, contained 80 books. St. Albert the Great, who I've mentioned before, Albertus Magnus. He, he is known in scientific te texts as Albertus Magnus. No one referred to him as St. Albert the Great. He was a Dominican friar, who is known as the greatest German philosopher and theologian of the Middle Ages. He was the first medieval scholar to apply Aristotle's philosophy to Christian thought at the time. He excelled at physics, logic, metaphysics, biology, psychology, earth sciences. He also noted the importance of direct observation with the statement... Science does not consist in ratifying what others say, but of searching for the cause of phenomena. Is this the thinking of the mentally, is this the thinking of people who are irrational and superstitious? You know, clearly it is reasonable. He composed encyclopedias, scientific treatises on every subject. He had a knowledge of theology that surprised his contemporaries. Of course, he had a very famous pupil, Thomas Aquinas, Saint Thomas Aquinas, otherwise known as the Angelic Doctor. He was the only doctor of the church who was doctor of all disciplines. Now, of course, St. Albert the Great was a doctor of the church. Now, St. Thomas Aquinas, I believe, had a huge impact on science, even though he's not typically called a scientist, because he was a philosopher and a theologian, and I'm positive that his philosophy had a huge impact on science. I just have found it very hard to draw the parallels because he, he didn't really delve into science all that much, not, not like Albertus Magnus. Roger Bacon was another doctor. He was a famous Franciscan friar. You find that all of these um, people were, were um, either monks or bishops or priests. He said, without an experiment, nothing can be known. He was the forerunner of modern scientific method. Another one, William of Ockham. Everyone's heard of Ockham's Razor? Yeah, that was the Bishop of Ockham who came up with it. He was an English Franciscan friar and scholastic philosopher. He was not always the best philosophically. There are problems with his philosophy. But it is to him that we attribute Occam's razor. Now, basically, the way that is typically repeated these days is the idea that if one can explain a phenomenon or something that happens without assuming something else, you know, if you don't need to assume it, then don't assume it. That's what Occam's razor is. And it's phrased in certain ways. What he actually said at the time, though, was very interesting. He said, for nothing ought to be positive, that means... Argued. Nothing would be argued without a reason given, unless it is self-evident, which means literally known through itself, or known by experience, he's experienced it, or proved by the authority of sacred scripture. 
So if someone asks you about Occam Rose, you then say, oh, you haven't studied scripture? And see what their response is. And there were various... There's um, Nicole Rizme, Bishop of Lisieux. He was a mathematician, physicist, astronomer, philosopher, psychologist, musicologist, theologian, translator, counselor of King Charles V. I mean, these people are what they call polymaths. A polymath is a genius in multiple disciplines. Um, I could go through lots and lots of these people. I won't, I won't bore you with it. Um, Gutenberg is one of them. Gutenberg came from the Gutenberg Press. He, he was a Franciscan tertiary. Now, if it hadn't been for the Gutenberg Press, there is no way modern science would have spread the way it was. The Protestants like to claim that because uh, he was a Catholic. You know, they, they claim that if it wasn't for Gutenberg, the Bibles would be printed. They are attributing it as if it was a Protestant phenomenon. Have you noticed that? I've noticed that, yeah. Yeah, I don't, I don't quite know how to respond to that. I don't think it was a Protestant phenomenon. Okay, well, there were heaps of other people here. There's the father of astronomy, Nicholas Copernicus. He was the one that came up with the theory that Galileo supposedly got in trouble for. He was a, a Dominican tertiary. Um, I don't need to go into him. There was the founder of modern human um, anatomy, Andreas Vesalius. Um, Galileo, who, by the way, always said that um, the church is not repudiated by theories. He died a Catholic, was buried in, in, in hallowed ground and so on. Um... A whole bunch of Jesuits. Jesuits are just about everything. I mean, there are about um, there's about 30 craters on the moon named after Jesuits. Um, saints. There are a few more saints. Saint Nicholas Dino, um, and lots more Jesuits. Um, Ampere, you probably know Ampere. Alessandro Volta, um, the founder of modern physiology, father of modern genetics, Gregor Mendel. If you speak to any biologist today and say, "Oh, who's the father of our modern genetics?" They'll say, "Oh, Gregor Mendel." And then he said, oh, did you know he was an Augustinian monk? No. Oh, no, that can't be right. Surely not. He's a father of modern genetics. He was an Austrian. He's an Austrian Augustinian monk, you're right. <laughs> an Austrian Augustinian priest and scientist. He was dissatisfied with the Darwinian views which were around at the time, which is interesting. Darwin believed that evolution occurred by pangenesis. And basically there were genes in the environment that, that, that infected the organism. Now, Gregor Mendel just didn't like that. He thought that sounded a bit dodgy. So he did all his experiments with pea plants, which sounds that doesn't sound very um, glamorous or anything. But pretty much he came up with the laws of inheritance that we use these days you know, to determine how traits are inherited. They're called Mendelian laws after him. Uh, Louis Pasteur, who we all know about, founder of physiochemistry, father of bacteriology, inventor of biotherapeutics and so on, pasteurisation, um, came up with lots of vaccines. He also came with a statement, happy the man who bears within him a divinity, an ideal of beauty, and obeys it, an ideal of art, an ideal of science, an ideal of country, an ideal of the virtues of the gospel. He couldn't understand the failure of scientists to recognise the demonstration of the existence of the Creator simply through observing the world around us. He died with his razor in his hand after listening to the life of St Vincent of Paul, which he had asked to have read to him because he thought that his work, like that of St Vincent, would do much to save suffering children. Then you have Alexander Fleming, um, Father J.B. McElwain, and yet another Jesuit. Um, he was in seismology. Seismology was known as the Jesuit sign because the Jesuits did it. They still do it. They still do it, yes. They still do it. Seismology? Seismology, the study of um, um, strata and, and earthquakes and things like that. Um, there's even a medal still awarded in, in this guy's honour. Father George Henry Lamote. 
Now, many people will also say, I don't, I don't know if any of you have heard this, but many people will say, oh, the Big Bang Theory also proves the Catholic Church is wrong. Uh, well, this is the guy who came up with it. It was a Belgian Roman Catholic priest, 1894 to 1966, professor of physics and astronomer. He proposed the hypothesis of the primeval atom. Einstein didn't believe him at first, probably because Einstein, probably because he used Einstein's cosmological constant. That's what many people think. And Einstein didn't thought his cosmological constant was a big mistake. He called his theory the cosmic egg exploding the moment of creation. And um, the, the running view was a steady state theory. You know, the universe just always was. And there was a, a guy, a scientist, who was the um, most prominent um, supporter of the steady state theory called, called Fred Hoyle. In a radio interview, he sarcastically referred to the hypothesis of the primeval atoms as the Big Bang Theory. And that's where we get the name from. It was, it was a sarcastic reference in, in a radio interview. Now, I don't know what you guys think about the Big Bang. That's, um, but it, it, it was come up with by... It was a Belgian Roman Catholic priest who, by the way, doesn't say he, but he was actually head of the Vatican Academy of Sciences at the time. Now, I saw an article just a while ago, um, I wouldn't say a while, it was a few weeks ago, saying that they've discovered the cause of the Big Bang. And so we no longer need to use God to explain it. And what it was, was the fluctuation in the vacuum. Now, the first thing I said, of course, was, well, what caused the fluctuation? <laughs> Which caused endless problems, anyway. And what caused the vacuum? Well, yeah. Actually, there's a very good question that um, um, someone in my Dragon Ball Club uh, um, one time said to me. He said to me, well, what is the universe in? Is it, I mean, you say the universe is here, what is it in? And then he started expanding on that and expanding on that. And, and you start to get yourself into huge problems. And I've never had a decent answer to that. In every single text that I've read, it's a very interesting problem. If you think about it, the universe must be infinite. And yet people say that the universe is not infinite. Or at least some scientists do. Anyway, that's a discussion for another time. Um... That's pretty much all I'll cover with science because I'm way above time at the moment, I think. No, you're not. You're not? Oh, okay. 20 minutes. 20 minutes? Okay. Okay, I, I can do this in less than 20 minutes. Now, I'll briefly cover moral, morality. Not that I am an expert really on the entire history of morality in the Catholic Church. However, Western standards of morality have been shaped by the Catholic Church. I think many people deep down do realise this. I mean, I've spoken to people who are not Catholic and they do recognise that Catholics have had a huge effect on morality in Western civilization. The insistence on the uniqueness and the value of each person actually is quite unique in all of history and was nowhere to be found in the ancient world. Even in Roman times, the poor, weak and sickly were left to their own devices. So many Western standards of morality have been shaped from this one unique concept of the sacredness of each human life. I mean, we just throw away this idea ourselves. We're so used to it, we're Catholics. This, this was actually a, quite a unique idea at the time. And even now, there are philosophers saying, well, life is not really all that sacred. We should resist that, heavily resist that. Catholicism spoke again, out against the Roman practice of infanticide. They literally did this. It was considered morally acceptable in Greece and Rome. Plato himself said that a poor man whose sickness made him unable to work any longer should be left to die. Seneca, another philosopher, wrote, We drown children who at birth 
are weakly or abnormal. Babies that were deformed or were not convenient, even healthy female children, because they wanted to have males, were just simply abandoned. It's almost like Peter Singer's view of the world. It is very much like Peter Singer's view of the world. That's why I am scared of what Peter Singer is saying. It really is quite scary. However, even the Western condemnation of suicide is a part of this morality. St. Augustine spoke out at great length against the portraying of suicide as noble, as many cultures did at the time. Christ did not urge suicide on his followers to escape persecution. In fact, the Catholic Church actually grew during times of persecution. Later, it was the Church and the teaching of Christ that helped to abolish gladiatorial contests in which men fought to the death in the arena. And this is even reported in the notes of Roman historians who know that the butcheries of the arena were stopped at the command of Christian emperors. These suppression of the gladiatorial contests were, were complete by the 5th century, all due to the Catholic Church and the teachings of Christ. This is no mean feat. Of course, the rationale for duelling was a mitigation of the whole idea of gladiatorial contests, you know, where people duel each other and yeah, kill each other. Cult, you know, when you see films or... You know, even comedy sequences yeah. of duels, you know, take 10 yeah. steps forward here and your weapons team. Yeah. Where did that come from about this honour thing? I mean, it's not Catholic and, and definitely it, was, it it's seems not, to have been practised. It, it seems to have been, um, it came from these gladi gladiatorial contests and it was a, a diminution of the gladiatorial contests so that it wasn't as bad, it didn't, it didn't destroy as much life. However, even though that happened, and dueling did was a mitigation of these contests, of these gladiatorial contests in, in which lots of people got killed, eventually the Catholic Church even stamped out that because it was just too much waste of life. Sexual morality was another issue. Sexual morality had reached a particularly degraded point until the Catholic Church came. Some people, some cynical people, might even say very similar to today, but not the private one say that, of course. Promiscuity was widespread, perverse, and sadistic. Marital fidelity was at an all-time low. At the end of the second century, the Roman historian Tacitus contended that a chaste wife was a rare phenomenon. Rarely ever happened. The church taught and still teaches that sexual intimate relations were to be confined to husband and wife. And in the end, the, digni the dignity of marriage was reformed by the Christians. Contrary to some popular opinions too, adultery did not simply refer to a wife's infidelity to her husband, as the ancient world so often had it, but also extended to a husband's infidelity to his wife. How, how um, weird is this, you know? Same standards for each person. This is possibly why women are such a large part of the Christian population in the early centuries. And if you ever read the history, they are a huge part. They are so hugely involved in it. Part of the attraction for the faith for women was that the church sanctified marriage. Women found protection in the teachings of the church and could even form communities of religious that were self-governing. This was unheard of at the time. I mean, people talk about the repression of women by the Catholic Church. They don't go back this far and, and, and I talk about the saving of women. This is completely unheard of in, in any culture in the ancient world. These are some of the ideas that the Catholic Church, Church introduced into Western civilization and has permeated throughout all our culture. Even teaching the lies of the saints inspires greatness of people. St. Thomas Aquinas, St. Francis of Assisi, Blessed Mother Teresa, unless of course you are a Christopher Hitchens, in which case you say that Mother Teresa in fact actually killed lots of people. You can, you can gratify your appetites or you can go out there and save the world. That's pretty much what the Church teaches. 
Our current world seems to do everything to enable us to gratify appetites. We need to avoid that. These days, even simply proclaiming that you are Catholic, however, that you practice regularly, is declaring the independence of, of a majority. So, just as a way of summary now. For 2,000 years, the way Western man thinks about God, 2,000 years, has been overwhelmingly indebted to the Catholic Church. 2,000 years. Even the ways we think about God has completely changed. Catholicism has taught that God is one, that God is supreme, that God is transcendent, which means um, apart from his creation, he does not animate creation like the Greeks believe, and God is good, and the world is good, essentially good. These four concepts have changed our, our, perceptive, uh, our perspective of education, science, and charity, and works in ways too numerous to mention. So entrenched are these views that even movements that oppose Catholicism are using Catholic ideas, and they're, and they're so Catholic themselves. They use Catholic concepts through and through. We cannot even remove Christian idioms from our speech. They are so entrenched, and neither should we. We should, we should never lose our Christian heritage, although we will if the European Union has a say since I believe it has removed any mention of Christianity from its constitution. Can anyone verify that? Okay, I'll just, I'll pretty much finish. So I'll just finish with a quotation from an atheist or agnostic. I'm not quite sure what he is, actually. Um, he said something which is very interesting. He said, discoveries in the areas of physics and quantum mechanics have vanished forever the notion of the universe as a closed mechanical system with nothing for credit to do. This is a huge problem. This is probably why we have the rise of atheists saying such nasty things like religion poisons everything, or the God delusion. The next thing he says is it would seem that even the most prominent atheists are ascending the pinnacle of knowledge. And have a guess what they see at the top? They find a band of theologians waiting for them. I think that's actually very interesting because even Richard Dawkins can't get away from this. I remember him trying to explain away um, one of uh, Thomas Aquinas's um, proofs of the existence of God. Basically, uh, it can be summed up in a very simple sentence: any contingent B, if B must have a cause. So, any anything that actually relies on something else, anything that actually is contingent on something else, must have a cause. Must have a cause. You, you keep going back. You keep going back to the first cause. There must be a first cause. It didn't have a cause itself. It's not contingent. It's a, it's a non-contingent being. And have a guess who that being is? It's God. Now, the the proof is there must be a non-contingent being. And the way that Richard Dawkins responds to it is simply by saying, well, that, um, that non-contingent being must actually really be a contingent being. And so therefore must have been caused. Which really is quite silly because there's no reason for saying that. He's just saying... Um, it's just saying A is not A. That's what it's saying. It's, it's, it's a logical fallacy. So even Richard Dawkins can't get away from this. So I think that's a very interesting quote. That it would seem that even the most prominent atheists are ascending the pinnacle of scientific knowledge and need to find a band of theologians there waiting for them. However, we must never lose the notion that the Catholic Church created our society. It, it made our society what it is. And we must never lose our roots, our beginnings. You have been listening to a Lumen Verum Apologetics Lecture by Paul Bazanas. For more Lumen Verum Apologetics Lectures, visit cradio.org.au.